100% born in the Appalachian Mountains and made in the USA, Timber Ninja Outdoors provides a range of mobile hunting options to accommodate diverse hunting preferences. Whether you prioritize comfort, lightweight design, or versatility, their two-panel and single-panel saddles collection has something for everyone. The Black Belt Nano is the lightest single-panel saddle available on the market, weighing in under a pound. The saddle is designed with the minimalist hunter in mind, focusing on lightweight functionality and breathability. One notable feature is the patent-pending magnetic stick clip system on the side, which allows for convenient transportation of sticks up the tree, as well as a built-in platform holder. The Nano Saddle can be folded up to the size of a Nalgene bottle, enabling easy portability. With a four-way stretch material on the back for a comfortable fit, as well as strategically placed padding for hip pinch relief. You can use code EASTMEETSWEST to get free shipping on any Timber Ninja order. If you try it out and don't like it, send it back within 30 days for a full refund. Learn more at TimberNinjaOutdoors.com and sign up for their email newsletter for exclusive discounts and product drops. When it comes to optics, I get the same question over and over again. What are the best all-around binoculars? Well, it's tough to find something that works in every condition great, but after using a pair of Maven B1.2 10x42s, I think I found them. They feature an 8x or a 10x option, superior low light performance, tack sharp edge-to-edge clarity, a generous depth of field, and a silky focus mechanism. All of Maven Optics have a lifetime no-fault warranty and hail from the great state of Wyoming. I've been using Maven Optics since I bought my first pair in 2017, and I think you should test them out for yourself. Head over to mavenbuilt.com and use the code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full price optics order. For all of those that want a truck bed cover for work or play, Diamondback makes the top of the line heavy duty covers that help you do more with your truck. They're perfect for the truck owning, avid sportsmen, outdoor enthusiasts, and weekend project warriors. I'm currently using the HD cover that can is capable of holding up to 1,600 pounds on the top. And then I have the Yakima overhaul HD bars on top so I can put my rooftop tent on it. When I'm not using my rooftop tent and able to use the trifold design of the Diamondback, I have the Crossbin 8 in there to organize all of my stuff in the back of my truck bed. Diamondback is made right here in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. If you want to check them out, head over to diamondbackcovers.com. If you've wanted that hunting camp tradition that we talk about, that experience, but you don't have a hunting camp of your own, you're welcome to come stay at my hunting camp up here in the Pennsylvania wilds called the Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA wilds. So if you go over to Airbnb, you can check out our three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath house that's right in the heart of Pennsylvania elk country. It's only minutes away from a bunch of public land to be able to hunt, hiking trails, outdoor recreation, fishing, all of those things there. The house is completely fully stocked with everything that you need to be able to, to spend a week hunting deer, taking your family up to see the elk, anything like that. So if you head over to Airbnb and search Elk Cross and Getaway in the PA Wilds, you'll find my listing there and you can rent out my house to send us a message and inquiry that you're interested in it and mention that you heard it on the podcast here, then we'll get you 10% off of your first day. Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I am joined by Pennsylvania hunter Jake Belinda. So Jake is a former professional baseball player and is a content creator slash videographer in the hunting industry. So we discussed Jake's journey into making a living in the hunting industry and then really get into a lot of Big Woods whitetail topics, including breaking down hunting big timber cuts, areas with a bunch of mountain laurel, and late season success on public land in Ohio, which is, I would mentioned it last week on the podcast, but we uh, we went down to Ohio and Jake ended up filling his tag just, just to give you a little bit of a teaser there. But anyways, so there's much more that's packed into this and uh, I'm excited for this episode. So on This week's Mountain Buck Monday story of the week, we have a story coming out of Pennsylvania from Jeremy Frampton. So before I'll say, as always, you can head over to East Meets West Hunt on Facebook and and Instagram and be able to check out the photos of the deer I talk about here. And then the story is also posted there in text, so you can check that out. So this is the story of my strictly strategic plan setup based on opening day orange army pressure that led me to my biggest Pennsylvania public land mountain buck to date. It was November 27, 2021, opening day of the rifle season. I was excited to be out hunting with my dad and my brother. I went to my spot. It's a big flat that is in the middle of a couple of different terrain features and different access trails and tram roads which I knew would be getting a lot of hunting pressure and more than likely hunters pushing a lot of deer through this flat. If they walked that direction on the trails, I thought they would. I got settled in against a tree before daylight and heard a few shots at legal light across the hollow at roughly 6.40 a.m. I could hear a deer running directly behind me at my six o'clock and we had a lot of crunchy snow on top of the mountain that morning. So hearing a deer was, was pretty easy. At first glance, I saw a large bodied deer with a wall of tines, there was no need to take a second look to make sure this was a legal buck. He was on a dead run coming in front of me parallel, but away from me at about 120 yards, and I had an opening to make the shot count. So I put my crosshairs in that opening and waited for the buck to appear in my scope. As soon as the buck entered, I put my, I had his body in the crosshairs and pulled the trigger on my Winchester Model 7308. It all happened within seconds, and reality set in that I just shot a huge mountain buck. Took a few deep breaths to calm my nerves, and walked towards that opening I shot the buck in. Didn't take long to find his track, but there wasn't any blood. I continued about 50 more yards, and then I looked, and there he was. I saw the buck laying there dead. I was excited at the wall of tines, something that I've dreamed about for such a long time. A huge 10 point, my biggest buck to date, and I couldn't be happier to be tagged out in PA. I called my dad and told him I shot a barely legal buck just to mess with him. And when we got up to him, we spent the rest of the day enjoying the memory of the hunt with my dad and my brother. It was a hunt that I'll cherish forever. Although I've gotten a buck every year since I was 12, it's not just about killing a buck every year. I just love spending time with my family outdoors, hunting down these mountain deer. Something happens to my soul, and I feel so alive when I'm in these mountains. Man, couldn't say it any better there, Jeremy. And and such a freaking tank of a deer. I have to go over and check out those photos. Uh, congratulations. And sounds like you figured out the the whole hunting pressure thing when it comes down to to uh you know rifle season and being able to use that to your advantage. So congratulations. If you have a mountain buck story you want to send in, 
just email me at bo at eastmeetswesthunt.com. Send that over um, or another easy way, just going on eastmeetswesthunt.com and go down and fill out the form at the bottom where it says contact us. That's another way of being able to submit it. But love sharing these stories. Keep them coming and I'll keep sharing them. So I guess a few news few news items here before I jump into this this episode here with Jake. But so Mountain Buck Scouting Camp went live last Wednesday and it sold out right away again. I can't can't believe that that it happened like that two years in a row. So thank you guys. I'm so excited for everybody that's gonna get to come and spend time at this camp. I promise you it's gonna be a really cool uh, experience and, and you're going to learn a lot from everybody that's there and, and willing to share their knowledge. So that'll be a lot of fun. And it was kind of crazy that there was so much traffic on the website and that time frame. It, it basically it sold out in three minutes, but there was a couple spots where if you had added the, the camp to your cart, you know, so to speak on the website, it showed it as sold out. Well, there was a couple people that held it in their cart for like 60 minutes and they decided not to buy and went out and and a couple of you were lucky to keep refreshing the page and got in. So <laughs> good on you for, you know, waiting out and and being able to to get in there, but it's uh it's really exciting, man. I, I'm I'm pumped for that camp in April and getting to spend time with everybody. So I'm I'm in some big planning stages of that right now, trying to get that ready, make it bigger and better, having gear giveaways, all these different things to make it super beneficial for you. Um, and other news, I did mention a little bit on social media, but not on the podcast yet. So for the last like two years, I've been talking about trying to come out with this online course when it comes to scouting mountain bucks. And I had to keep it quiet now for like nine months, but I it's finally everything's a done deal. And uh, I ended up signing on with Outdoor Class. So Outdoor Class is basically, um, it's a platform online where it hosts a whole bunch of online courses, hunting courses, you know, wild game cooking courses, um, all this different stuff in one place. And you just pay one fee. You pay one fee for a year and you get access to all these courses under that one cost. So it's pretty cool. And, um, so Randy Newberg is the one that's running this course. There's, there's courses in there from Remy Warren, Corey Jacobson, um, John Barclow's having a course coming out in there, Hank Shaw for cooking, and I'm going to be doing the whitetail stuff. So a whole scouting, uh, Big Woods Whitetails course on there. I'm going out to Bozeman to film a lot of that here in March and should be available in the summer. But if you do want to check it out ahead of time, you can save 20% off uh, outdoor class by just using the code BOW, just B-E-A-U, um, if you if you want to get in ahead of time and learn some of the Western hunting things or the cooking courses that they have available. But they're just continuing to add courses. And I signed on for a three-year deal, so I'm going to come out with three courses uh, with, with different you know topic-based, at least three courses, over the span of the next three years. So I'm really, really excited about that. As I've told all of you before, like my passion is in the education standpoint and being able to help people have these experiences. And I've found so much value in online courses and these like camps and stuff. And that's why I'm doing them uh, to, to be able to help with it. So it's, it's going to be really cool to, to be able to put that stuff out there. So 
Uh, and then lastly, just want to thank everyone for all the for all the apparel sales that I've had, you know, over the last few months, especially uh, from the website, the East Meets West Apparel Deer Camp stuff's been a huge hot seller, and um, you know, I try to have the highest quality stuff and um, making it at a, at a pretty affordable price, and and being able to you know send that stuff out to all of you guys. So thank you for for the support there. And the last thing I'll just ask is if you like this podcast and you enjoy it. I put it out there for free. I'd really love it if you just shared it with, you know, you not even doesn't even have to be through social media. If you want it, if you want to share it on <clears throat> social media, that's awesome. I'd love for that. But if you just, you know, text it to a friend or share it with somebody you think that can help from it, um, and then you know, leaving a rating and a review wherever you listen to it, like that stuff helps me out so much to be able to continue to do this. So thank you for that. With that being said. Let's jump into this podcast here with Jake Belinda. All right, Jake Belinda, welcome to the podcast, man. Hey, man, how's it going? Ah, pretty good, pretty good. We, um, it's good to talk to you again. I was hoping to do this podcast in person while we were hunting together. You know, I guess a week ago, but uh, well, I was feeling pretty shitty and sick, and and uh, just kind of not in the mode to podcast. So I was like, we'll just catch up afterwards about it, but. You never got sick, did you? No, I didn't. I didn't. I mean, I don't know if it's just from being run down from being ATA the whole time, but I I feel all right. Good. Yeah, I'm just, I'm actually just getting better. I got back in the gym this morning and everything. I was just like, I was shot last week. Wasn't yeah. Doing a whole lot, but. Tony said he's, he was the same way. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was laughing when Johnny, when we woke up. So to give the viewers a little background here, we were, we were hunting in Ohio for their muzzleloader season in January. And, uh, um, we were sleeping in Johnny, Johnny has a, a camp in Ohio too. And we were there and we woke up and had kind of sore throats and Johnny's like, it's, you know, the wood stove, you know, you always wake up with sore throats and you do. And then he's like halfway through the day, he's like, Oh, the sore throat should be gone by now, but it's not not going away. <laughs> yeah, especially whenever you accidentally have the heat cranked and it, you start sweating in the middle of the night, 100 degrees in there. Yeah, you had that, that military sleeping bag that was like rated for negative 15. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. It became a, uh, a, a just a pad at one point. I wasn't using anything. Yeah. No, that's that's the same. I I end up just sleeping on top of the the sleeping bag after after the first night and I learned when I woke up and like just a full on sweated out just it was yeah, that was insane. But anyways, before we get into that, Jake, how about you tell the the listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, kind of your background, another Pennsylvania guy, so I'd love to love to for you to educate everybody on that. Yeah, so I mean, I grew up here in Pennsylvania more in the central part of the state. Um, I was an athlete my whole life and hunting was secondary. Uh, I mean, it just became, and then as I went to college and then playing ball, I went, you know, the Lockhaven university played ball there for a while. Um, hunted all around that area. Got the really, that's where I think I got my understanding of bigger woods, uh, just because where I was at at school and then, from there, I went to play professional ball. So then when you were done playing professional ball for the summer, I pretty much had to fall off. So it was it transitioned really well into my secondary love. 
but then after you know a few years and then my career abruptly ended with injuries and other, you know i basically turned my love of hunting and tried to pursue it as a some type of career and i just had to figure it out basically i mean that's kind of where everybody goes they just got to figure it out in life no matter what they're doing but still in the building process of that and uh the filming aspect is where i i got my start and i'm slowly transitioning from the filming aspect into my own creation and then going to continue from there yeah no that's that's it's a pretty cool um transition and it's funny because like yeah baseball definitely sets you up pretty nicely there to be able to hunt yeah. <laughs> during the fall like that's and it's probably you know right after the seasons end there like it's not like you're full in training mode like before the season like it's <clears throat> i'm assuming kind of a little bit of a break time yeah it's just it's pretty much you know you're done in september that's your off season and you don't ramp your your trainings back up until you know november december because you want to give your body a break of of just the grind so then you're just basically i just basically would hunt every day and um my dad being a taxidermist i helped him his business out just because it was easy for me to train you know to do something instead of picking up a, a job a full-time job in the off season it tran it just it transitioned really well from my particular um avenue you know it's not like that for everybody but just the way how I grew up and my situation, it just panned out really well. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's pretty neat. And, and, uh, I think the, I was trying to think back the first time I met you was at the great American outdoor show. If I remember correctly, like, I don't know, that was like six years ago. I think it was a long time ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, when you came I up. Was and, still, yeah. I was playing ball at that point. So I was actually getting ready to leave to go to spring training. Um, but that was about the time that was the time I was playing professional ball. Yeah. And we had talked and I, I, right then, you know, I could see like your passion for hunting the big woods and like, you know, the same type of stuff that, you know, I grew up doing and just, you know, different part of the state essentially, but same concepts. And, and then, you know, throughout that, I kind of got to see as you transitioned into learning the media side and, you know, filming and doing that. How did you, how did you learn? Like, did you just kind of learn from youtube university basically or how did you kind of pick that up yeah i mean i i've always had this weird knack of photography and stuff because i, I remember you know growing up having a little handy cam or a set when cell phones became popular i just always would like to take pictures and it started with fishing like native brook trout fishing that's kind of where my my eye be, for different shot angles and stuff and then from there i uh I went down and filmed with the untamed guys at Josh. Um, and that's where I got the business side of things, the initial start, like learn the ins and outs, the daily grind, the filming aspect on a, cause they were a, pretty well established. So it's like, it was a good transition to go into. And then from there it was just all self-taught and it's continuous self-taught as technology advances. It's never ending. Yeah, no, I, that's cool that, I mean, there's been a couple guys that I've got to meet now that have done, you know, internships with, with either like the untamed or the hunting public or one of those, you know, established YouTube channels that have really transitioned well, um, to, to I mean, even Justin who films all my stuff, he had, um, he had interned with become one the TV show and then eventually started filming for them. And like, I think that's such a, I mean, you can speak on it better than me, but I feel like it's such a valuable thing. You know, you have to, obviously give some of your time, but it's, it pays off in the long run. 
Yeah. I mean, and it's as far as you want to take it. I mean, you can do an internship and something and then get out and be like, that wasn't for me. And that could be completely okay. But until you live the daily life and the grind of the job, basically it's a job until you do it enough. And then you're like, okay, this is what I want to do. And you have to continue putting forth effort to continue to learn. It just basically gives you a jump start on the nitty gritty details of, of doing it as a business and as an actual job. Yeah. Some people just were like, Oh, I want to film a hunt, but yet they leave their camera in their truck. They take, they do everything until it comes down to either leave it in their truck or take it to the tree and forget to hit record in the moment. It's just there to do it correctly. There, there becomes a certain aspect that you just got to knuckle down and do it. And internships is kind of like where you learn to do that. Yeah. And, and, and I, I feel like, there's like a romanticism with filming hunts until you actually do it. And, and you have to really love it. Like it's, it's, it's oh, a grind. Yeah. It's super hard. It's not, not simple whatsoever. Yeah. And, and it's easier in different parts of the country. Um, just because the way the lay of the land and it's more, you know, Midwest, it's more visual. I mean, just because where we're at in the, in the mountains, I mean, your, your visuals of filming are not like, you're not going to see a lot of deer they're around, but where you're in the timber 99% of the time, you just don't. So you're not learning certain things as quickly as people that are seeing things every single day and having more opportunities to get better. So it's, there's, there's, it's, you got to fall in love with it and continue to grind it out. Yeah. And, and I learned that when I first wanted to make a film about hunting the big woods, the one I made a couple years ago, it was like when I was trying to pick a week for Justin to come film, it's like, you can't really plan that out. Like you can, you know, Midwest rut hunt or something like where you're like, I'm probably going to get it done or have opportunities or see deer. I was like, I don't know what, you know, 70 some degrees the week he was there. Like we saw a handful of deer. It doesn't get not real great for content as far as filming goes. And it's just, it's a, it's super tough unless you're doing it every single day and kind of doing it yourself. Yeah. This, that, that was the same way this year. Like we had terrible rut weather and that's your best chance to get deer on their feet. Um, just to see more deer. I mean, you can get young, young deer cruising, bigger deer on their feet, but early October and stuff, you're not, you know, you're not going to see much. It's so thick in certain areas or so vast that that it's not great. Like you said, it's not great opportunity to make content. So to have it every, that's just what I do. I carry mine every day, no matter what, and just try and piece it together if it all works out. Yeah. That's, that's what I did this, this past season too, is I just carried my camera with me every day and filmed stuff. And it felt so repetitive, like of nothing constantly, but it's like, once you finally get that, that opportunity, then it's just like going through all this footage and trying to make it into something. And, and I was, I, I had mentioned it on the podcast before, but I was so mad at myself that I finally like committed to self filming this year, like full on the whole season. And then I finally got my opportunity and I didn't have the camera angled at the right angle that I needed it to. And I missed this shot that was like perfect right there at 12 yards. I mean, I, I made the shot with my bow, but not with the camera. And, uh, that was a big, like eye opener for me about how difficult it is to, to get all that stuff to line up. Dude, self filming is probably self filming and executing it is 
the number one hardest thing I think to do. Like I, I, it's harder than actually finding a big deer to hunt in my opinion, because you have to have so many things go right. It's, it's <laughs> very, very frustrating. And I, I, you can attest <laughs> to it. I can as well. Yeah. And, and like we said, like not to beat a dead horse, but hunting the big woods, lower deer densities, thick country, you're not seeing much. And when it happens, sometimes you don't even hear them coming, especially if it's a wet day, all of a sudden they're right there, they're in your lane. And it's like, you know, do I shoot? Do I try to get the camera on it? And I think, you know, you can attest to, I haven't seen the footage yet, but I've been, I've told that your, your hunt that you did in New York this year, that you basically stocked up on a buck and set up your camera and filmed the whole thing. Like, I don't know how you pulled that off. That that's yeah. I, I mean, in theory, you're like, man, if I could do this, it would look sweet. And then I actually having it done. It's, it's probably my greatest, it's not the greatest footage, but the whole concept, it's my greatest accomplishment is filming myself just because the, the amount of effort that goes into it. And you have to have a little bit of luck too. It has to be in a situation that, you know, he was on the other hillside in the snow. So it's, he didn't, and he didn't move from feeding. He was eating fern. So he just stayed in one position for a long period of time. So it, it's not like a moving deer, like. It, it yeah. just all worked out to the perfect, you know, recipe, so to speak. Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about that story about what, uh, what happened there time of year, kind of what you were doing? Yeah. So that was, that was up in New York. Um, another big wood setting. I, I, I went back to an area that I went last year and killed a deer. Um, that I have, I'm going to put that hunt out as well. Uh, it's just not, you don't get the kill shot cause I had to decide it's either film it and just film them or shoot so i shot but i went back to the same area just because i knew it um it was gun season and just i like to track big woods bucks in the snow so whenever anytime it's snowing i head for the hills as much as i can so i just basically got on a track and tracked them uh tracked a different buck all day long and I only had a half hour of daylight left, but when I was on the process of tracking that other deer for seven hours, I, I kept, I stumbled across a buck's tracks that were 24 hours old, 12 hours old, and then like six hours old. So it was the same track within a hundred yard section going to and from a food source and back to where I think he was bedding. That was just my thought process. So I just decided to go to that where I thought he was going to bed for the day and I just beeline. And when I got there, I mean, I just happened to catch him on his feet, feeding away from me on the other ravine. Just, it, it literally worked out exactly in my head. I'm like, okay, this is a South facing slope. Most in, in the way the wind was coming straight from the North that day. So it'd be blown over their, over their backs. He was looking down this, I mean, it's wide open in that part of where I was at in New York. So you can see two, 300 yards and nothing sneaks up on him. I just caught him basically with his back to me facing directly uphill, feeding heavily right five minutes before dark. So the, their guard is completely down. It just that everything worked out. To, and I wouldn't even have went to that area unless I cut those tracks than another buck track walked over top of so it just that was a big thing that i've been learning through the years is when you track 
deer in the snow it teaches you so much on not only where they go but where other deer are going and that you'd be so surprised how many times that another buck has takes you to another buck yeah just because they know for they just know where they're going and know where to run into other deer and it, and at that point of the year it's post rut they bucks like to get back together for for safety reasons and it just you know all panned out that way so do you think that that buck was was um he was just like getting up and feeding in the middle of the day like sort of deal like he was bedding right there and he was just getting up and kind of stretching his legs and feeding or i think he was bedded within 100 yards of where i seen him feeding um that you know that part of new york they don't have there was no oaks they feed on uh beach brush you know maple tips some you know there's some red red brush up there but a lot of fern they eat a lot of that fern root and it just i I always try and remember if i was there earlier where a bit where big pot pods of ferns are if you're scouting it earlier in the year because that's a certain time of year food source yep and i just that that you know i just remember that pocket transitioning it from another area that's two miles away in the same geological outline it's just like okay you take that and replicate it somewhere else there should be fern in the same area and it just i was like there's fern over there he's betting on that point because the way the wind is the way the pressure from other people are and it was the only deer track that went that direction and it was a giant buck track and i mean i'm assuming that's the deer i just never followed the track to where he went yeah i beelined interesting and and it's funny because you hear like how ferns are like not a preferred food source and all these things and and i believe that in areas when they have better food but like when you don't when you get in some of these big wood settings especially when there's no oaks um you know there's no acorns there's not any mast like it's they feed on what they have available and you know, that was, that was something I learned, uh, in late season, Johnny actually had taught me that years ago about, and then I was also like, I was finding sheds in areas that had ferns and it's like, okay, they're obviously spending time here in the later parts of the season. And, uh, you know, when the earlier parts of the season, when everything's green and they got, there's a whole bunch of other stuff out there, it's not, they're not even messing with it, but that is, that is pretty interesting, but you you've seen it and even in the spring you're like what's all this it just looks like black dirt that was just kicked up have you ever wanted to have levi morgan andy may johnny stewart and others available at all times well you can with cyber scout from spartan forge cyber scout is like the chat gpt for outdoors men and women you can ask it any questions related to bow building scouting hunting survival and a whole lot more I think you'll be impressed with how it responds. Cyber Scout is currently out now for a select group of early beta testers and will be available to the rest of you really soon. The entire app is a complete tool for planning your hunt with incredible aerial imagery mapping, journaling, deer prediction, and some of the most accurate and detailed weather data. Use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 20%. And if you're still on the fence, give the 14-day free trial a chance at SpartanForge.ai. CVA has been America's number one selling muzzleloader brand for over a decade. Hunting with a muzzleloader opens up a ton of hunting opportunities across the U.S. And I've been using the Acura series. But they don't only make badass muzzleloaders. 
Their line of centerfire rifles are great quality and not terrible on the wallet. The Cascade short barrel is ideal for tight quarters, deer drives, and quick shots in the big woods. You can check out their line of muzzleloaders, rifles, and accessories for every season and every range at bpioutdoors.com slash CVA. If you use the code EASTMEETSWEST10, you'll get 10% off of all CVA products, which includes rifles, muzzleloaders, and accessories. But they're actually just eating those fresh tips. That's the most nutrient-rich you know, piece of the root on that fern, and they're just they're little fern balls. Like if you ever just pull one out, it kind of looks like a little bulb and they're just trying to get down to that bulb and ferns grow so tight together. So they just have a, an, basically an abundance of just picking at it. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, I've, I've seen them do that with other, uh, plants. Like we have a lot is, um, leeks. So wild onions that grow yep. and you'll see like, and they always grow in, in spring seeps. So like I always find sheds in there too, especially if you get like a warm spell, kind of like what we had here recently in the winter. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those leeks will start coming up earlier than normal. And then those deer will feed on that and they'll, they'll be chewing on the, the bulbs of it or the yeah, onion and if, part of it. And if you can remember that just year after year, it's just something to check, you know, and, and keep, that's where I, I always tell guys, keeping historical data, just trying to remember things that were four years ago. And now it's every scenario, no food, the weather patterns, everything is the exact same. And you found a big chunk of, you know, I found seven sheds on one, one face because the food source was there that year, four years ago, everything lines up the same this year. So why not go back and check it? Yep. Just because, you know, that historical stuff and remembering that kind of gets you ahead of the ball game in the long run. Yeah. And, and, and I think, and it's funny because, you know, I, I talk about historical data a lot too. And I, I realized that you need to, it kind of needs to be explained how you did with, it needs to be, it's not just every year when you look at historical data. So say like you had a buck at a certain time in this area, blah, blah, blah. You can't just say the next year that's going to be the same. It ha- you know, a lot of times that's correlated with what the food is that year or, you know, what the weather was doing at that time and those things. And then like apply that and you might not have that same situation for, like you said, four or five years, but yeah. like having that in your mind and, and writing down those notes or however you remember that the best, you can really kind of get ahead of the game when you, when you start compiling all that data from, and it takes time spent in the woods to learn that. That's, that's exactly right. And that's just where, that's why old timers, when you run into them, they they just, they know certain things that we don't know. And even though you spend more time in the woods, they're like, well, they've been doing it for 40 years in that area. And they're yeah. by their camp. They're like, well, this time, the same as back in 97 or whatever. And they go to their historical place and they end up seeing a bunch of deer. And it's just because they've done it so long that everything lays out the same. The, the ter- and now, but if the terrain's changed where they come in and cut or something, now it's a completely different ball game. Yeah. Yeah, but, no, most definitely. You know, the if it the whole scenario is kind of a, a replica, then that's where that historical data really, you know, pays out. Yeah, definitely. And I know you, you, um, you, you and I talked about this when we were hunting in Ohio, but you spend a lot of time focusing on cuts, too. For am I correct? Yes. And so talk a little bit about like clear cuts and kind of what they mean to you and like how you kind of utilize them because I feel like that every cut is different 
and depends on like I know you deal with a lot of giant cuts and that's a whole different ball game than like you know when you're focusing on edges you can't really do that essentially when it's like uh, the traditional edge I guess of like the edge of the cut when you're looking at ones that are you know six to eight hundred acres even yeah and that's you know my area they do our cuts are different than your guys's small TSI cuts and and you guys just in the big woods of where you're at compared to where I'm at, they do s- smaller pockets where here they're doing it for the long term of like one specific species of Oak, you know, like they want big red oaks to come back for profit for the state. But what I do, you know, how I focus on it is clear cuts to me is not only it's a food source, but it's a bedding area. It's literally everything a deer needs. So, depending on the t- most of the clear cuts I hunt, they have everything within 200 yards. So they literally don't have to move if they don't want to, which makes it, that's what makes it very difficult to kind of yeah. figure out a, a really good deer. Cause you might, they just don't move in daylight, especially if there's any pressure around They're just, they just know if it, as long as they hold tight, like a rabbit, they're just, they're okay. Um, but how I the the clear cuts I focus on are they leave all the mother trees, big oak producing. It was because we had a lot of gypsy moth come through and kill off a lot of white oak, and then it just it destroyed a lot of our oak rejuvenation. So they they're trying to salvage um, the timber while they can, but in turn it's creating giant giant clear cuts. I actually have more clear cuts than hardwoods. <laughs> that's insane so it's, it's you got to learn to hunt it yeah what what um what type of i mean you mentioned about you like the cuts that have where they like kind of like select cut and leave some of those seed trees as they call them to uh, you know to regenerate as they as yes. they drop but like what are your favorite type of cuts like the newer ones or like what kind of age time time frame i like i like three to seven year old cuts um and that and that seven-year-old, that older seven-eight, depending on where it's located on what slope angle, because like you'll notice on certain areas of the clear cuts, it, it's thicker from the sun, depending on the time of year. So it's like okay, if it's a seven-year-old cut on the the west-facing southwest-facing slope, it's going to be thick, and it's basically going to be. To the point where it's the deer aren't living in it. It's just now pole timber where they pass through it, but they're not staying there. So after that certain threshold of six, seven, eight years, it's not really usable. Um, so I try to stay away from that. But that three to five year cut window is my favorite. Yeah. And and I'm I'm the same way with it because you get you get the regrowth, so you got all the briars and shit that's coming up, and yeah. so they got just plenty of food. Plus, it's thick, and then you still got the seed trees and everything there. Like you said, they don't need to go anywhere. Well, not only that, it, it's it's that, but for me, I have a lot of hunting pressure, so it's kind of like guys look at it and like I'm not going in there. So it's a benefit for me to kind of go that extra mile because most people will just turn around and not want to bust through it. So that's just a beneficiary of it's thick enough that the deer, they can go through anything, but people not going through it is another big proponent because there's one, two year old cuts with the tops guys will walk around in that or push it, drive it out where those three, five year old cut, they're not going to get a gang of guys in there during rifle season or bear season and push it out. 
Yeah. Yeah. You got to be really dedicated to want to, want to do that. Cause you're going to end up ble- bleeding pretty good. Exactly. What, uh, so how do you break down those giant cuts? Like if you find one that's in that age range that you're looking at, how are you breaking that down and kind of going in there and, and figuring it out? Um, the, I mean, the, I just, I run a lot of cameras. Um, but the way I learn that certain, I just, in my mind, I'm thinking of a particular area that I, I started focused on this year is I run a lot of cameras and along the creeks because the creek bottoms, they're going to tell you what deer in the surrounding area. Um, and then you can start micro managing back to where they came from, even though you're getting nighttime pictures, they don't, the state does not cut uh, watersheds and water systems. They keep that timber. So that's that kind of like that threshold that it's kind of like a highway for the deer at nighttime to come out of the thick areas to just kind of run around and do their thing. So I'll run cameras through those bottoms and especially on the creek, creek crossings and stuff, I'll learn like, okay, this buck's crossing from this, this side to this side. And you can time, time frame that where he's coming at seven o'clock at night from the west so he's probably betting in that clear cut and you know and then you just keep that up over two three years i now have six seven deer that i'm targeting that are four four to seven years old that have stayed in the same clear cut their whole life so it's that you would think they're bouncing all over but they're not they're staying where they know because they kind of have their own little home pocket where they don't have to go anywhere yeah. And, and, and now that's a good point. Like when you find them in, and you can kind of backtrack of figuring out like, okay, if this is a buck I want to focus on and you think he's coming from this clear cut, now I can start looking at, you know, tearing apart that cut better of figuring out like how yeah. I can set up and, and be able to hunt it. And I mean, I don't traditionally, when I find cuts is finding a deer bedding in one bed very often. Like, I feel like they have like a, an area, like or a section of that cut that they kind of cycle through and it's just kind of like their home and they might get up at 10 in the morning and feed around a little bit and then lay down right here. And then like, kind of just do that throughout the day. Yeah. I don't know if you're seeing the same thing. Yeah. I actually, my number one target deer, he made it through again this year. Same, same thing. He stays in, it's a 210 acre clear cut, but he stays in like a 20 acre section of it. Like he does not like to leave that and that's his little corner and he's stayed there the past four years. So I, I just, after learning that, cause in the first year I had no idea. I thought he was just in that big clear cut in the, you know, in the center of it. Cause I didn't really understand like how that terrain laid out, what was going on. And I seen him twice. That was as a three-year-old but he was always going the same direction. So then later that year in shed season, I decided he, what, cause I ended up taking a different deer. I was like, okay, why did that deer always going the direction he was? So I basically would follow him and then learned all this, this sign and rubs. And then from there, I just kept breaking it down to, he stayed in that corner this year. He's a four year old. I thought he was staying in just that half. So I've just been slowly shrinking and shrinking over the years that he's actually only been staying in that 20 acre section. And now I got a better bead on him as he's even older uh, to kind of in the ball game next year, right off the bat. Yeah. And, and, and 
I, I feel like when those deer get older too, their home range kind of even shrinks down even more. So that's work in your favor as you're, you know, obviously they're smarter, but they're just kind of like, they've got, they've got their area. They know when they're, where they're safe at, where they feel good. And what, what do you think your plan of attack will be? Like, if you know, he's living in this 20 acre section, like how, how will you now, now put that into like application? Well, I've, that's actually what I was doing not long ago. I was, I was, trying to figure out where my my entrance points for you know the best set sits were but my point of attack is going to be just put time in that that area that's his most frequent spot it's too thick to kind of bust brush without them knowing you're there um so i'm just going to try it sit on the closest edge point you know because now i found a couple of his primary bedding spots internal because i found there's a little tiny depression in there when it was extremely cold uh there around christmas time i got a daylight picture of him walking inside that clear cut and when i went in there and tracked him in the snow where he was bedding in that small tiny depression that you would net you can't see it on any any mapping systems you just have to actually put boots in the ground and all that's doing is allowing that wind to cut right over top of it and it's just a small, tiny, I mean, it's only 15 yards long by 15 yards wide. Yeah. But it's enough that he, and when it's really cold or he can stay there. And that was a north, north, northwest wind. They, you know, it's those small breakdowns is kind of, you're like, okay, if that happens again in November or whatever, I can kind of go back in there. But like that October time frame, I'm just going to sit, sit edges and hope that he comes out the trail i'm sitting on because that's pretty much it, my only option yeah and yeah hey, you're, you're right just putting the time in and and not trying to blow him out to the point where like that's the hard part of like being aggressive and being in his area but not not putting too much pressure on him where he blows out and then all that information that you learned about him kind of goes out the window at that point yeah and this this particular area gets hunted pretty hard there's guys that hunt that clear cut and all over there's some camps nearby um but that deer's learned throughout his years on where people enter and exit the woods and nobody walks in that section so it's basically as long as i stay on that perimeter a little bit closer to where he knows people are um I'll be able to kind of get a little bit more advantage because I talked to a guy that ended up seeing him this year and I, I, I figured cause his stand was in a really good spot. He just wasn't the brightest and the wind blows right to where the deer goes and he seen him, but blew him out. But he said mm -hmm. the buck ran back into where that same spot that he never leaves. So as long as like, and that stand, that was one of those stands that's there all the time. It's there next year it was there the past five years just a permanent mm -hmm. buddy stand but it's in a great location to see them it's not in a great location to get an opportunity to harvest them yeah. so and and you know like and within those cuts like i always see like the deer running some of those lower lying areas and stuff that like you can't you can't even see on a map like you're talking about sometimes it'll just be like a little depression but like some that'll be some of the trails they'll use but where where you see a problem with that especially when you get terrain is myself included is have made this mistake is you set up 
and and then all of a sudden your thermals start just kind of ripping down through that even if the wind direction's doing oh, if yeah. you don't have a steady enough wind it just it screws you and that's how those deer that's why those deer can travel that and they they feel safe in it exactly and that and that you know thermals are a huge proponent and and primary wind directions but it's kind of like there's a reason why that deer is there especially and that's there's a reason you're not seeing multiple bucks in that spot like he's claimed it as his and then you'll get the younger deer to kind of bounce the perimeter all the time because they know kind of like the king of the areas that's his spot mm-hmm. but if he gets taken out that's a rep that's an area that the next year there'll be another big deer in the same spot because it's you know i use the analogy of you you catch a big fish out of a hole another one's going to replace it the next year because the habitat and everything is the, it, it pans out what they want. Yeah. And do you, when you were talking about like, you know, getting on the edges of that area, do you mean like the actual edge of the cut or is this like an edge of like an internal portion of the cut? So both. So I, I'll sit on the edge of the cut on, on the trail system. Like you'll see, cause if you follow the edge of clear cuts, you'll find big scrapes and, and rubs, but that's, that's a lot of like nighttime. It's not midday activity until a certain time of year. Yep. Um, so I, I, depending on the time of year, I'll, I'll focus on maybe one of those scrapes that's near. And I know that he's hitting them and that's just where the years of data is kind of panned out where I know that's, that's one that he makes and that, 30 yard section that's his but i would like to sit on the edge and then there's a little finger that goes up into the clear cut that i've walked it's just a trail a deer trail that after when you look at it from right at the edge of the clear cut it looks like you can't get through it you get through 15 yards and it opens up Hmm. so it's one that i just been wandering shed hunting and was like oh i can actually use this with uh, without actually busting a bunch of brush you're only doing it for 15 yard section and then you can walk another 80 yards and now you're within that 150 yard bubble and that's where i'm getting that's the hardest part is going to be getting up one of those trees without him hearing me or seeing me that's going to be that's going to be where your hunting abilities come into play on really being careful in what you're doing yeah and, 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 you know, like when you start hunting those interiors like that, they're like the interior edges, as I call them, like you can find, I, I liked, I liked looking at those like little openings that you'll find in those cuts. Cause it always seems like trails congregate and, yes. and, you know, cross through those spots, but it's like the spot within the spot, you know, those openings that sometimes they're not the easiest to get into or get at, but they can, they can really pan out and they give you shooting lanes a little bit too, but the deer still feel secure because everything around them's thick. That's exactly what this, this spot that I'm, I have in my head where I want to hunt and hang and hunt is because on the aerial maps, and that's where looking at different, different aerial data, like what time of the year, what year you can actually see where this, the skitter was pulling logs out. And that's kind of like a micro log landing that he crossed, that it crossed that area doesn't ha- And it's like a little opening inside of the clear cut itself. So it's a micro crisscross for deer to naturally use as it's growing thicker and thicker. They they're using that as a highway. It's like a big intersection. So that's where I want to be is that little tiny clearing inside of a clear cut it's only you know 20 yards wide but it's that's enough 
for a deer to just they they think they're safe and that's your shooting opportunities and if you, you know when you're talking about like getting in there and and hunting it you know multiple times how how are you planning on and how have you done it in the past as far as like getting in there without the deer um knowing you're hunting them all the time you know like not not just like the quietness of like getting in and out but like you know scent like your access like how are you kind of looking at those things I, me, I'm not a big proponent on scent control. I just never have just because the amount, of, I, I just never got into it much. So wind is number one. I, I try not to hunt. I, I won't go in there if there's no wind. Like if it's one of those really calm days, you're not getting in there without making enough noise that is even when you're har- trying to target a deer that's five, six years old in the caliber that I'm trying to target they might not see you or smell you, but they heard something and they're not going to get up in daylight and go and investigate They're They've learned just, I'm going to chill out here until dark and wait until then where I know it's safe, you know, cause they've never been shot at in the dark, but they've been shot at in the daylight. <laughs> yeah. They just learned that over the years or they've never been spooked like they have in the, in the, you know, darkness. So I have to have, a pretty strong wind to cover my sound because you're going to make noise no matter what. And then you, I have to have a westerly wind for, for three of my, you know, three of the four accesses is I have to have that West Northwest wind. Southwest is doable, but anything from the South or the North direct North or anything easterly is just, I'll just let it alone at that point and go. And that's where running as many cameras as I do and have multiple targets I'll go target a different a different buck. I'll try to set up different sits for different winds just so you can have an option. Yeah. And and you know like like you, you know I run a ton of cameras and doing the same thing and it's hard because once you start having all these spots, you can really get yourself on uh the overload of in your mind of not knowing where to go unless you have it like dialed like i know for for me the way i need to do it is i need to have like a written plan that i have at the beginning of the year like before the season even starts where i write down potential locations on certain winds weather all that stuff just so like because once you start getting you start getting uh, anxiety and, and stuff when things aren't working out. And then you're like, I don't know what I have all these options, but you have none in your head. Like you're just trying to figure it out when you have this plan there, just stick to it, like, and go and, yeah, and be and able that, to go to those spots. I'm the same way. I got, sometimes I get overwhelmed where I'm like, I don't even know where to go yet. I had 10 different trail <laughs> camera pictures of box and, and I got buddies like, what do you mean? You don't know where to go. I'm like, yeah, I could go in there, but I'm just kind of at a crapshoot. I like to know that I that deer was there a couple hours ago or whatever. Like I, I just like to have the best chance possible, and because otherwise, I feel like I'm wasting time and not gathering intel somewhere else. Yeah, so it's kind of like this weird addiction of I'm trying always chasing the next thing, but then I get caught up where I'm actually behind, and it's I get in my own head. <laughs> And it, and it, it kind of hurts you in a long run instead of like certain time you're just getting a tree and wait it out. Well, I'm shooting a new bow this year and I am pumped. After playing around with the buddies Hoy RX8, the smile on my face made the decision for me. The first thing I noticed with the new Hoyts were their extremely smooth draw cycles and the ability to adjust the back wall to make it rock solid like I prefer. 
I outfitted my own RX-8 with the inline accessories that made installation extremely easy and balanced out the bow. My favorite accessory so far is a simple one. It's the GoSticks 2.0 adjustable legs to make your bow like a tripod, but it doesn't interfere with any part of the bow or the limbs or anything like that. In addition, the integrated kickstand within the HBX Exact Cams protect your string from excess wear when you put your cam into the dirt. Ground hunting or spot and stock just got easier. If you want to experience what I'm talking about, head to your nearest Hoyt dealer and take a test drive yourself. You can learn more at Hoyt.com. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a consumer-based hunting show unlike any other. It provides an interactive learning experience where you can try all things mobile hunting and learn from the best in the business. Come experience an unbiased, community-based environment where you can improve your hunting skills and find the right equipment for your needs. I'll be speaking at the Nor'easter Show in Mannheim, Pennsylvania at Spooky Nook Sports from August 9th to 11th, 2024. So come check it out or either of the other shows in uh, Michigan and Georgia. You can purchase tickets online at themobilehuntersexpo.com or grab tickets at the door. I'll see you there. Yeah. I so. I did the same I did the same thing this past this past year. I was not I didn't take the steps even though I sit here and I preach it like I didn't take all the steps that I needed to and I was just like, "Oh, I'll, you know, I I've done this enough. I'll kind of figure it out sort of deal." And I was hunting other states and all of a sudden I came back and it's a season and I wasn't plan I didn't have it planned out very well and I was like bouncing around trying to find this hot sign. It's like Man, if I would have just took the time and had and entrusted the stuff that I know from the past and the sign that I've found, and there's there's something to be said about hunting hot sign, but there's also something to be said about you know sticking to what what you think's going to happen and looking at that historical data and just kind of executing it. Like my cousin Mason and I were talking, I don't know, this might have been a couple years ago, but he was like after the season he analyzed it and he's like, I realized we got a lot of South winds, you know, Southeast winds during the rut. And he's like, I didn't have many stand sites or like potential spots set up for that. And he goes, I was kind of like caught, you know, flat footed where, you know, now going into, that's something I think about when I'm postseason scouting in the spring and I'm walking around, I'm like, okay, here's, you know, this is where I think this deer after years of you know, getting photos of him. I think he's living here, but now I need to figure out, okay, yeah, this looks like a really good kill site, but this only works on these two wins. I need to start looking at other options because you might get into that rut time or whenever you plan on hunting them and you're getting a completely opposite wind. And that, that's, that's exactly right. I do the same thing where I'm, I just, cause I'm in the same boat. You are, we get that North really Northwest winds. Like that's the time of year it's getting cold. But whenever you have like a year like this year where it's super warm, <laughs> south winds, you're like, what is I never planned for 70 degree weather. Yeah. But deer still have to get on their feet. And that's where I'm going back through my data now where I still have pictures of deer in daylight doing stuff. But I would have never guessed that, mm. you know, and it's another big learning curve. But it's exactly right. I, I, I have that second thought process of okay this is like primary but you have to have a backup plan for that if you're gonna try and hunt that specific deer and area you have to have that secondary backup yeah and this year i think 
what ended up helping me with that warm weather was I went back and looked and it was very similar to 2020. You know, it was only a couple of years ago, but we had that warm weather during the rut. And I was like, okay, where were my photos and stuff that I had during that time? And it was like, they were in the hemlocks. They were in these bottom facing and yeah. And in the bottoms and, and these slopes. And at first I started hunting this side hill that was in the hemlocks that I had photos in 2020. And for some reason that area, well, I learned it was both hunting pressure and the, they had had some new cuts. So that kind of changed up the pattern. So it was like, I wasn't even seeing a single deer. And then I was like, okay, where are some other spots? I'm like, got some bottoms that are hemlock covered. It's cooler. You know, it's almost 10, 15 degrees cooler in some of those bottoms. And I went there and that's where I ended up killing one of my deer or killing the deer that I shot in PA. Huh. And, uh, it was just like taking that knowledge from before. And like, I typically am not going to make like a major jump on like, Oh, they're going to the bottoms. If you get like a day or two is 70 degrees. Yeah. But when you get like a week straight or three or four days oh, yeah. in a row, it's like now things are starting to change. Well, they, their water intake increases tenfold because you know, they're the, the, the mother nature, they're, they're gearing up to have a fat reserve for the winter. So they they have that extra insulation, and when they they can deal with a day or two just by lounging around, but they can't do that for eight nine days in a row of really warm weather. They have to feed. They they still have to get, and then their water and and just goes up. So I look at water sources particularly for me, and then hemlocks, it's cooler underneath them. Yeah, just it's it's ten degrees colder. It's more of a temperate environment where. You get on a sunny side where you would think they would be, they're just not there. They move. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then you couple that with the rut when it's their only time of the year to breed. So they're wanting to be moving. So that their mm-hmm. water intake just goes, you know, even more, you know, yep. tenfold, like you yeah. said. And it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, but it's, I don't know, like this going into this postseason, like there's, there's a part of me that really, I love going to new areas. Like that's like my favorite thing is walking a new spot, but there's also like, it takes so long to learn a new spot. And so I always have like three core areas that I've spent years in that I'll hunt. And then I'll like have a couple new ones that I like try to start learning. And then, you know, maybe I'll just drop my cameras there and never even hunt it, but just like start building that Intel and, and growing with it. Yeah, and that's exactly the same. I I did it this year. Um, I gained some intel in an area I've never been in. Doesn't mean, and there was nothing there I wanted to hunt. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to keep an eye on it for the next two three years because I liked it. I learned that there's actually more deer there than I thought. There wasn't a lot of pressure, but I didn't have a deer I wanted to. There was nothing that was targetable, yet. There could be next year because there's a lot of up and coming potential. So learning different areas throughout an X X amount of time, you now have just more options. And you you wouldn't know that unless you got some data of letting your cameras soak. Otherwise, you just have that power of the unknown. And you're like, man, was that a 150 inch deer in here making those rubs? Or was it a 110 inch bully buck making those rubs? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you and I talked about that when we were in Ohio about some areas that we've both hunted uh, that were just like you, you you see these big rubs and sometimes it just doesn't have big deer. It might be an old deer, but it's not you know a big antler type deer. Depending on what kind of your goals are, yeah, you, it, it's like a falsified like you get all like 
<laughs> wow, dude, this is going to be a giant. You end up figuring out what deer's in that area, and it's like, he's just a big, gnarly, heavy, short-tined, scraggly eight-point that's been living in the laurel his whole life, yeah. pushing everything around, and it's like, well, I mean, that's the mature deer. If you're, you know, but I have other options, so I just kind of bounce away from it. Yeah. Do you, um, do you hunt, uh, much, many areas that have like a bunch of laurel? Oh, it's, it's littered where I'm at. Okay. So I get a lot of questions on, on laurel and I figured that you'd be a good person to to talk about. So what do you do when you have like these just giant swaths of laurel? Like, how do you look at an area like that? I look at laurel like it's a clear cut. So the same concepts apply. So if you can find those internal open natural areas, deer tend to use them. Like it's it's flat and simple. And then that, but you got to be careful. Uh, Laurel is one of those things that it can get really thick, really fast for a long period, (laughs) or it can get really sparse, really fast for a long period. Um, And it's a lot to do with the hillside and the slope angle and stuff. So, but if you have a really steep side and you see Laurel, that's kind of the whole thing. I, I, there's deer in it, but I'm not going to spend the time to venture and figure out exactly where they're at because the only reason they're staying in there for for a long period of time is because there's a lot of hunting pressure. They like yeah. it. They like it in the winter, but they don't like it when it's a foot of snow and they have to go, th- you know, they're constantly hitting a limb of laurel and it snows down on their back. And there's certainly certain time frames, but it mountain laurel in my area particularly is, is like the sanctuary. It's where the deer go for the two week gun season that they can get away from hunters and they can survive to basically venture back out, um, away from it the next cut in the next year. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's yeah. Mountain laurels is, it's interesting because like there's some areas that I feel like it and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like mountain laurel doesn't usually have a lot of food in there unless they have oaks that are over the top that are dropping. And then that kind of creates like, like for me, if I find an area that has a lot of oaks that are, you know, dropping in there, that might be a time when I'm like, I'm going to look at this a little bit more, you know, seriously, when you're looking at the large swaths, now smaller areas, mountain laurel is a different story where like, I definitely think, you know, they'll bed in or on the edge of it. Um, or like you can actually, hunt it and be in the game on the outside like if you find a, a big scrape like they always find scrapes around the edges and some of these yeah. trails coming out and in the bucks like they're not at least from what i see is like the bucks aren't bedding in the middle of the thickest of the thick in there unless they absolutely have to like they're being pressured but a lot of times they'll find those pockets that you're talking about of like the little open areas you know during my scouting camp last year we found an example of this we walked in and you know there was a little just a little bit of like a rise and that was open and then it dropped down over and there was buck bed right there he's like he could look down over had a little bit of a vision there but he was surrounded by laurel that nobody could get in there without him hearing them coming that's exactly right and that's where having knowing that if you have an area that's it's a small pocket of laurel they're going to use that heavily um at all times a year but if it's a big whole mountainside or a whole hillside they're going to use it but they're not going to be in that internal stuff it's it's kind of like they'll go in 
to 25. I've only seen them go in like 25 yards out of the you know, visual where they they're that's like you're saying is they can hear anything approaching them, even if it's another deer yep. and then they have their escape routes. Um, but mountain laurel is one of those things. It's really intimidating to hunt. Um, but edges of mountain laurel can produce, I mean, that you'll see some really good deer in this state come out of areas that's a lot of mountain laurel, but there is no other food source. So if you have a second, if you have a food source, it's outside the mountain laurel and there's a transition period zone in between the laurel and the food, there's an edge. I mean, it's that, that is like a recipe for success, right? Yeah, no, I, I, I. I agree with that completely. And mountain laurel, though, like I do see deer feeding on that in the late season. Like, you know, we we're talking about ferns, like they'll just mm-hmm. chew on the branches and the leaves and everything of that yep. mountain laurel where you don't really see that as much like earlier on. I don't see them just like that's not one of their like preferred food sources. No, whitetails, they have such a high, um, they can eat so many different vari- variations of species of plants and orbs where they will eat it because it gives them something. Um, but it's not, if there's nothing else to eat, then they, they're they going to have to eat it. It's one of those, they just try it and be like, okay, I didn't, it didn't kill me. It, it it's maybe gets me through three days of harsh weather and then the weather breaks and they can go out somewhere else. It's kind of like the, it's a survival of the fittest type thing where if they're not, if they don't try it, then they don't know. And, in the areas they don't have it, then they might, you know, get a big winter kill. You, it's one of those things. It's mountain laurel is, uh, it's not my favorite thing to hunt. I know that enter <laughs> <laughs> away from it, but there's some really positive things that come out of it. Yeah. I, I you know I've seen like when you have hard winters too, like in, and especially like real cold ones and deer are hanging out in those hemlocks because hemlocks will do the same thing as they do in the early season where early season, it keeps it cooler or when it's hotter out, you know, but when it's really cold, it acts as an insulator and it keeps a little bit warmer and then cuts the wind and you'll see them chewing on hemlocks. Like it'll, there'll be a browse line underneath, you know, these hemlocks and pines and it's, and it's like, that's not their preferred food source, but they'll eat what they have to when it, com- yeah, when it comes down to it. Like, I don't look at a, a patch of hemlocks and be like, oh, look at that food plot. You know, I don't look at it that way, but <laughs> same with mountain laurel. No, it's a time thing. It's, it's all timing. Um, mm-hmm. Think about sitting in your house. Like, you don't want to eat that last, like, little piece of bread that's in you. Know, but if it's the last thing you have, you're going to eat it. Like, you know what I mean? Like the butt end <laughs> of bread. <laughs> yeah. like, you're like, ah. Oh. Well, there's nothing else. You'd rather eat a bag of chips, but it'll get you through, you know? So that's, that's how I look at it. Yeah, that's it. Especially guys, like that's that's the way my fridge looks right now. I was actually just before I got on this podcast, I was eating some stuff and I was like, man, I'm like getting real low on things and I'm starting to, you know, eat the ends of the bread and I'm trying, I'm starting to eat yeah. things that you typically wouldn't because that's what you have available. Yeah, but that's the same thing for deer. They they they're going to eat what they have available. But if it's you know we have pretty temperate weather right now, I'd say for Pennsylvania, yeah, um, for this time of year. So they're venturing out and finding those food sources that are they can re they can get to this time of year without being a foot of snow and ice. Where years past we've had a foot of snow and it's a glaze of ice on top of it, or they can't even hardly walk. 
So a whole hillside might have some, you know, oaks that dropped on it, but they can't even get to it. Yep. It's just ice covered. Yeah. And that that's, again, let's, let's, you know, relate that back to humans and I'll say probably males more than females, but like, you know, you have, all right, the grocery stores, you know, you got a 10 minute drive down there. It's not that far, but it's like, all right, it's kind of shitty outside. The weather's not great. You know, I got, I got other things going on here. I'm, I'm just going to make do with what I have, you know, deer different, but the same, you know, when it comes down, it's really bad weather and everything that they'd rather stay hunkered down in some of these places instead of having to go, you know, a mile over to this clear cut that might have all this food, but it doesn't create that, that cover, you know, for the wind and all those other things that are involved with it. It's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of fun to, to mess around and, and try to, and, and a lot of it's assumptions, but like, you got to do that. Like, I feel like if you don't assume things, educated guesses, like you're not, you're not getting anywhere. None of this stuff that we're saying is fact. It's just like, <laughs> it's what you see. And then you put kind of like your own inference. Totally. On it. Yeah. And that, and you know, and that's why when you talk to other guys, Midwest, where they're like, Oh, the late January is when the giants come out to, from their hiding. It's because, well, they're la- they become kind of lazy where they're like, I'm only going to bed 300 yards from the food source. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do where the rest of the year. I, you know, their guard gets down and they come out and they, just like you're saying, they tend to just be lazy in that sense. And I think that's why you see a lot of Midwestern guys, late season have really good success on the really big deer that they're trying to target is because they their guard comes down deer get lazy they don't want to travel a great distance to you know they're like well that's the preferred food i could go farther to bed and where i know i'm going to be safe but you know what this might be good enough and if you catch them in that part you know that's why people have the success they do yeah, no, I, I, I hundred percent agree on that. But speaking of late season, let's, let's, let's transfer back a little bit to what we talked about at the beginning of the episode where you and I hunted together. Um, not, not necessarily together, but we had, we were at the same camp, you know, in, in Ohio this past weekend. So, uh, kind of explain like your history with hunting Ohio and kind of what you've learned kind of like to start over the base there. So I only hunted Ohio three years. Um, and it hasn't been three continuous years. It was like once in college, like six years ago. And then last year I dabbled in it for a couple of days. And then this year I dabbled in it for a couple of days, but, um, they were all different. I kind of just been bouncing all over the state trying to figure out what I like. Cause you hear of like really big deer in certain areas. So you go and check it out. And it was just like, man, that's central part of Ohio. It's just the terrain like it just there's no terrain it's flatter it's different than what i'm used to i'm like man i just don't like it like i it just i didn't i didn't fall in love with it it was just something i didn't like so i kind of ventured away from that and just been bouncing to areas that i've i'm more familiar with um, and the, the bigger woods is what i kind of am more familiar with and it feels more like home where it's not to other people, it's intimidating where they, they, they hunt those small, thick river bottom pockets. I just, I'm not, I'm not a river bottom, thick pocket area guy, you know? Yeah. So that's why I I went to where I did this year. 
Yeah, and, and I'm I'm the same way. It's like I when I go to different states, I like kind of look at things that I like, like the areas, even more so than caliber a deer. And that's just my own preference yeah. of like I want to hunt a specific hunt, and that's how you you're able to find that. Did you find a lot of correlations between you know the area that you're hunting in Ohio versus Pennsylvania? Like, did you find a lot of the same? Like, they're using train similarly. I know you only hunted a few days, but like, wh- what were you kind of seeing? Yeah, they're using the terrain pretty similarly. Um, and the biggest thing I noticed right away was the hunting pressure um, was pretty low to for, you know, even though we've seen guys, but in the in the grand scheme of things of where I've been in Ohio previously, the hunting pressure was definitely like way lower because I think it's that intimidation factor. Um, guys just kind of don't know what they're doing in that situation. So they kind of were like, I'm not going to hunt it. Like they'll yeah. go somewhere else where they're more familiar with. So that's, I just ended up in a familiar type setting and applying what I know here to there. And it panned out, you know, it was just one of those things. Um, but they did, they, they use the terrain the same. Um, you just kind of think the same thought processes and it, you know, South facing slopes and, you know, that this North side probably has different type of, foliage on it and when i walked around the point i found what i thought was there so it it just it's nice knowing that you can pick a spot on a map and what you know and go there and it's like okay it 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 works here too yeah and i I think what what i've learned is that like it translates not exactly as far as like okay it might not be the same type of foliage but it's like all right if you typically see thick cover on these types of slopes well you're probably going to find thick cover it might be different it might be grape vines and stuff rather than briars or it might be green briar versus laurel and uh, but you can you kind of see some of those similar trends and that was i mean that was tough hunting during that that gun season when we were down there but from the standpoint of it was so loud in the woods and like a lot of those woods are very open and just a lot of big ridges and as you know johnny and i were joking like it was just like you felt like the deer heard you coming from like a mile away it was oh, yeah. <laughs> it's very and, very difficult and it just you know my situation like you know compared you were only a, a mile or so away it rained where i was at yeah like that little difference i think is what kind of helped my success like it, they like they didn't hear me that far away they you know where they even if they heard me it's within that threshold of like i see them you know they're at 150 yards and they jumped up instead of like they hear me coming from 500 yeah and they're already like looking and by the time they catch the smallest movement they're gone and you never knew that there was a deer there or not yeah well, and, and so one thing that I think that we were both focusing on, at least earlier, all three of us, Johnny included, was there was a good white oak crop this year. Mm-hmm. And, and you and Johnny were down there in December and, um, and, and had found, I guess, you'd found acorns and it's like probably going to hold over in January because there was just that many yeah. acorns. And that seemed to be our focus. And we all kind of went to different areas that had either that you guys had history from being there December finding acorns 
or just like finding similar type. The acorns were lower than they weren't really on the tops. They were lower. Yep. So kind of focusing on that. I know you were saying you went into an area uh, first thing in the morning and it was just like, it almost looked like someone had like bait dropped down because it was just so tore up. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I was, I remember finding acorns on that hillside when I was there last, I didn't walk the whole thing. I only walked a portion, a small, tiny portion of it, but then going back the second time, which would have been the more that morning, I really combed it over and was really started to look at like, why, why are these deer on this slope face? I know there's acorns here, but you know, what else is here on holding them? And then I found that it just, that there was so many acorns and, but if you go 200 yards up the hill, they stop because you're on the top of the ridge. Now, if you go all the way to the bottom, there's no acorn. So it's like this little tiny, it was like a strip of band of it of of food that you had to be on so if you're if you're basically ridge top bounce and you're missing the food sources the whole time so you would actually you know if you did that all day you're like there's no deer and there's no food here (laughs) but they're just down a little bit farther and then if you would walk that elevation terrain the whole way you could be in deer the entire time yep isn't that funny like and i've seen that in pennsylvania too like i remember one area i was hunting i think it was 2019 it was like way back in it was a hard access spot i found it shed hunting and and i found so much sign on top it was incredible i'm like if i come in here early season acorns are dropping gonna kill a deer well i dropped cameras all across the top and this is that was actually one of the years i really learned to start no matter what, putting cameras on different elevation levels, mm-hmm. but like had them all across these tops and there wasn't a single deer on my camera. And it was like a ghost town when I went in there in October and I'm like, what the heck? Well, yeah. it ended up being that there was just no acorns that year, but down low there was black cherries and beech nuts that were dropping and all the deer, they didn't leave the whole area. They were just in a different, they were bedding lower. They were feeding lower. It was just yeah. a different and, and when you get in those areas that rely on a lot of that mass crop, uh, that don't have, you know, clear cuts, that type of stuff that doesn't have that thing that holds them there all the time. It's very food dependent. Yes. And that's, and that's exactly right. It, that's the rotational food that having that data, like we've talked about, okay, you know, 2018, that it was same thing. No oaks on top, the cherries produced, let me go check there, right? The first thing. And if you have that note, you and check it in august or september and or like i like to do i like to actually go and in august a lot of times yeah it's really thick but if you walk um trail systems or any type of easier maneuverability i take my binos and i actually look in the canopies for oaks a lot of people are like oh i don't know if there's acorns this year until they start dropping i'm like well they have to grow the whole time you can yeah look in the air and tell you if there's gonna if it's gonna be producing or not yep i you know and and you can do that you can do that in in some areas without a whole lot of work like as far as you can even drive road systems that are like connecting and just look at oak trees and get an idea if you're like all right there's you can see them up there everywhere in late August. That's my favorite time to go and do the same thing. And, and even early September, right before they drop, you can really see them at that point. But mm-hmm. you can you can kind of get an idea. Now, when there's spotty acorns, you got to walk in and, and yeah. find them at that point. But you can get a good starting point if you have like 
uh, if you don't have as much time or anything, you can do that even from riding road systems and checking yeah. it out. I do, I do that every year. I'll carry even my spot and scope where the, because a lot of roads, especially clear cuts, they, they drag the logs up to the, the ridge tops and the roads. I'll get up there, I'll park and I'll sit on top of my truck with my spotter and I'll look across a whole way across the clear cut. That's half mile across, you know, but look in all those mother trees and, and be able to be like, well, okay, the, the, the whites are producing through the clear cut, but the reds aren't and be like, okay, there's eight, there's a, there's eight, nine white oaks in a little pocket on that, that, that slope side, drop a camera there, like, and, and then come check it, you know, right before season. And now all of a sudden you, you got a game plan of like what to do, where if you didn't do that, you'd be like, well, I don't even know if there's acorns in this whole thing. You know, all yeah. those deep are in that entire cut, so to speak, they just bounced from the whole thing to just a little pocket corner. Such, no, that's such good information. And, and it helps save so much time when you go into the season instead of like trying to find it right as it's happening. And then you're just spending days when on things you could have known ahead of time. For example, in August this year, right before I left for my, my elk hunt, I went around and checked some areas. And there was the one area I was hoping was going to produce was just a pocket of oaks. And there was some trees that had them, but it was, it was little that I was like, these are going to be dropped and probably scooped up before season even starts. It's like, I'm not even going to look at this for early season. Like not even it's out of the, it's out of the window. I don't even care about it. And that just crossed that off and made it easy for me, you know, to not go there. And that's a huge thing that I tell all my buddies and people that ask me, I get a lot of questions, the same thing. I'm like, knowing where not to hunt is just as informative of knowing where to hunt. Yep. So it, it that, that right there will get you, you can look at a map, a, a square block and you can cut it in half and being like that half, don't have to hunt. There's no reason to go there. Then you can micromanage the other half, and it's just you're so ahead of the ball game from you know other people that are hunting. You know, and 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 such a that's again such a good point. But like when you look at when when you look at there's people that you know the same thing. Ask me questions whether it's on social media or email or like when we do when I do these scouting camps and they're most of the time people know what they're doing. Like they know how to find sign. They know how to find good spots. It's just now it's organizing all that stuff and figuring out where to be at and where not to be at. Like that's, that's more of the game than even being able to read sign. Like it just, it is because I, same thing. I have friends that they, they know how to like find sign and they know kind of, they'll, they'll put the time in, but they're too late. You know, they don't even think about, trying to find sign until like second third week october and i'm like well those deer were there they were white oaks they're now eaten and gone yeah. <laughs> they're they're, hunt, they're they're hunting there being like well what i'm not seeing anything it's because well the, the food source was there last week and you're just behind on the eight ball yep i, I so. totally agree but going back to the story about ohio so Essentially, you were hunting in that you were hunting, and you found all that good sign. But then you had a situation with a bunch of people kind of coming through and driving, driving it out. Yeah, I mean, I it was a great little pocket. Um, I knew that there was deer there. I seen four, I seen four that morning, um, and then two unknown deer uh, that I jumped, but the wind was in my face. I think they just they heard me. It was early, you know, it didn't rain yet. 
it was up towards where you guys were at. So they just heard me coming and just le- I could hear them jump up and then just slowly walk down over the hill. So I don't know what was what they were. That could have been the buck I was, you know, that was making all that huge sign that it was right there. I don't know. But then I had a, that group of guys come through just lackadaisical shooting. They end up shooting their gun four or five times at a log for fun, just causing a <laughs> bunch of chaos. Like I was like, well, I I don't think that I'm going to see a mature deer on his feet in this entire, you know, ridge system anywhere around where I'm at. Cause there was just, there was 10 guys, 12 guys that were just having a good old time, which I I've done it before. Um, but when you're hunting by yourself, it's just kind of like a kick in the butt. So I just like, well, I got to go somewhere else. And that led me to driving around at two o'clock in the afternoon and having no data, no nothing. And I had to kind of go on a whim and that's what led me to where I ended up harvesting that buck was. I just was driving and I seen food source, which was a giant cut cornfield. And then I was like, okay, I mean, when this surrounding area of a mile, two miles, three miles, where would these bucks be bedding at? You know, cause they'll come here at night. Doesn't, they're not going to come here in the daylight and cross a road, but they got to be somewhere in the general area. And that's what led me to like go up on that ridge and just walk the bottom all the way up two, three miles, get up on the side of the hill, found an old logging road, walked it out. And to the point that I ended up shooting them on. Yeah. And, and, and I think like your thought process there on like, it really wasn't that complicated. You just simplified it. You're like, okay, food. Okay. This seems like a, you know, a food source. There's not much else that's like this around here. Yeah. And they're probably going to come here, you know, it's later in the season, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Where's the cover that's associated with it that they're probably bedding and you went in there. Yeah. And that's, and that's exactly right. So you do that in November with other pressure of people, it's not going to pan out like that. Being in January, being like no pressure around and that's driving around at two o'clock. Like you kind of know that, okay, there's nobody, I didn't see a single other hunter just that time of year, you know, nothing, it just was a Sunday. There could be some locals that are hunting, but how, and then we talked about it too. I was like, how many of the locals already shot their deer? That's why they're not hunting. Like it's January. It's, it's like the last two raw. It doesn't, you know, guys aren't out there in the woods because they either might've been successful already. They gave up or whatever. I just simplified it as much as possible. There's main food source and I don't know. And that, that's also looking at the food that wasn't combined extremely well. They didn't have the best of the equipment. So I was like, you could see like corn stubble still on the ground, little cobs everywhere. I was like, there's, there's food there and just correlate that food source to the bedding area. And I was like, well, if I was going to shed hunt, I would go on South facing slopes. So I just wanted to kind of walk the South facing slope and it just rained became evening and that and the way I accessed it, I was actually coming back towards the vehicle, you know, and it just because people access it from the bottom where I parked. If I would have went straight up, I don't know if I would have harvested that buck because he probably would have seen or heard me coming because it that's what people did. It was out of the ordinary to have something come from above him and he didn't hear me, didn't smell me. 
So I think like when we were Johnny was talking on that on that point, I found that big scrape on that old logging road. It was just one, like I said, super old logging road. Another one met. There was a big scrape. It and it turned into it was right as they turned into all the south facing slope along that ridge system. Turned and the terrain went from and just the everything the foliage went from wide open to that slope. I was like grapevine, greenbrier turned into thick, nasty stuff. I was like, this is it. This is where you want to be. That scrape was opened up in January, and I'm I'm 300 yards from the truck. How like it just happened to work out like that. And I think, like we said, that deer was bedded close, heard something up in his home, and he came and checked it out. And I just happened to be standing there at the right time. Um, and he walked up, and I surprised the heck out of him being a person up there at that time. Yeah. Because he took two leaps. But I turned, I seen, I seen, it was, uh, I seen his right side, which is his better side. And then he stopped because it. You know, my wind was blowing across back where I came from because I walked with the wind in my face the whole time. Um, he was like, he looked, he was, you could, I could see him through my scope, like looking around, like what just spooked me? Like he couldn't figure it out. But by that point, I already seen him and my gun was up and my hammer was back and I just found a small opening and with a muzzle loader, you could punch through a little bit of brush. So I just punched through some brush and, uh, he only expired in 40 yards, but after I shot, I had no idea what happened. Like, <laughs> I, this, that's, this is the first muzzleloader deer I've ever shot. So this big plume of smoke went up, but I can't, my ears are ringing. I don't know what's <laughs> going on. I was, and I was looking, it's getting, it's like, you know, it's that gray light where it's like last shooting light. I'm like, where, what opening did I even shoot through? I'm like, looking. <laughs> I, I just couldn't figure it out. And so I, I finally found a little spot with my binos that I shot through. I didn't see any, I was actually looking for trees that were split in half. <laughs> if I shot through a tree or something, I was like, eh, oh, okay. I don't see any trees that I split in half. And I walked by the time I got down to where I thought he was standing, I could see his white belly down there below me and he went nowhere. Oh my gosh. That's, and, and so at this point, I went and picked up Johnny after dark and we had no cell service. So I'm driving out the road back to camp and just thinking like, oh, I wonder how, how Jake did. And then my phone starts, you know, blowing up. It's like, I got the first text message that said, I just shot at a really good buck. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. And then next, then there's a picture, the next, you know, message. Cause they were just coming in and I'm like, yeah. we got to turn around. And then, you know, so we called you and, and luckily you had service at that point and we're able to send a pin where you're at and went in for the recovery. And that buck smelled fully rutted out. Like his tarsal yeah. glands were black. He was like, it, it was, I'd never seen anything like that in January. No. And that, it, and it's, it goes to show like it could be, he might be, he might not have been that rutted up, but now he's on that that area where it's conjugated there's more deer and those younger does are in estrus they're not they're not actively seeking out you know mates but it was just there you know there he's with a bunch of other deer and that deer came in heat and now he's his testosterone jumps a little bit and he starts like a, it just kind of falsifies a rut into him and that's where he started you know making that scrape and tarsal glands are all black it all, I think it all pans out to like, it was just a, that food source in that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. that buck is just an 
absolute hammer. I mean, just like exactly. I mean, you couldn't ask oh, for anything man. better on, you know, public land, private land, no matter what. Like that's just an yeah. awesome deer. Five-year-old deer, heavy. Like I, we, it's funny when I told you when we were going to the bed the night before, I was like, man, I don't really want a 12 point for some reason. <laughs> With a kicker, yeah. he's a he's a mainframe nine with kickers. That he's a twelve. Like it yeah. just like manifested it somehow. Yeah, you, know? you did too. You said that we were laying, we were in bunk beds, so it's kind of funny, you know. We're laying there. Johnny's in one bed. I'm above you, and you're like, I really just want to shoot a twelve point. <laughs> like, that was sweet, you know, because you joke around at camp, but it's kind of like that weird. You have to, you have to have a good mindset going into a hunt. And my my dad taught me this at a young age like if you were kind of down and and not happy when you're hunting and just like you know you've you've probably met people in camp before they're just like negative nancy about everything they don't see anything in the woods they just it's like a self-reflecting where you kind of have to have a good mindset going in you, you can't be like oh man this ruined this it's like just deal with it you're hunting remember the bigger reason when you're out there just having enjoying the enjoying the time in the woods and good things are going to happen to good people that just have, you know, a good mindset. It's just how it happens. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and I think we had a good group at camp. Like all three of us are at, I would say pretty positive people. And, you know, Johnny's like the pinnacle of that. Like he's always like just very optimistic and like get your spirits up and, and I, it, you got to have that, especially when you're going in. I mean, really that's, that was the low odds hunt for two days to go in to a piece that, you know, oh, we yeah. really weren't that familiar with. I'd never been there. You'd only been there once before. Well, where you killed was you never been there, but like, it was just like, you, you, you have to have that positive mindset of what could happen. And, you know, you could, it could have been very much so that you, none of us got anything and, and that's, Jesus. that's hunting, but it ended up working out that way. And, and that definitely was a, a morale booster and, you know, taking them back and and throwing them on the the back of the diamond back and driving down the road and it was just like we were all just fired oh, up. Yeah. i mean that's like that it's the, the only downside is if i could have filmed that that would have been like the the most sweet like <laughs> film ever just because it's it was so simplified so you know camp well okay can't can't hunt here anymore where to go now ah, go here in the woods you know, this is where they should be. I mean, theoretically, theoretically on paper, you know, and I was, and it worked out. And then you get the, like you said, drive back, get to see like uh, driving on top of the truck on the way back. Like you didn't get to see the, the angle I did, but driving, but it, it was just sweet. Yeah. You know? Did um, you, um, I didn't, I noticed a couple times you had, your, you got close to me and your high beams on, were you filming it? Like when we were driving? I, I, I got, a, I got a couple small <laughs> clips just for just for the socials and i was like man yeah. i gotta get a clip of that yeah you know it's something like you don't see every day it's like no. you see it once and you're like man that's sweet you always do or you'll see the guy that fly, you know you're on an interstate or something and you see a guy passion you see a rack hanging out you're like oh but it's gone <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? uh, yeah and especially in january like i just oh, thought yeah. that was such a cool thing that you know, it's basically after most hunting seasons and we got to actually have like a deer camp experience that you would have in October, November or early December yeah. and like have that aspect of it and get a buck down. Like it was just, that's what you're on the cake. 
that's exactly right. You and and I, I love being a part of the, like that. I, even the, if I'm the shooter, so be it. If you were the shooter, so like it's just that aspect is what you kind of it gravitates you to that group setting as a camp aspect, like having the good guys in camp and the right mindset, everything just, it's like, if you could write down the positives, that's all it checked, checked every box on the way. So it was just, it was a great, great, like cap to the season and just, it's just going to hopefully carry that morale into the next season. Yeah. I, I hope that, you know, anyone listen to this, cause I, I do feel like this is something where I've been lucky throughout the years that I feel like I've always been around good people to spend camps with. I've got to meet some, you know, awesome people and like yourself and Johnny and, and all these people and like always having this And if, if you can, even like, even though like deer hunting for the most part is a pretty solo endeavor, but like if you can find, if you can surround yourself with people that whether it's in your hometown or, or your family or whatever that has that drive is positive to be around, like it just helps so much. And that's like a whole aspect of deer hunting that I love. And that's why I like always talk about deer camps. Cause it's just that, that you can't, I, it's hard to explain to somebody that hasn't experienced it, what it's like to have that. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, growing up that, that deer camp mentality, is kind of going away. Um, but our heritage in Pennsylvania, we have a really strong heritage of, of deer camp and it's that older generation and our generation is kind of getting out of it. Um, but me personally, I've never, I've never been a part of a camp. I, you know, my family, my dad's in that, and uncles used to be in a big camp at my uncle's place, but it dissolved over time and everybody getting going different routes in life. So I never got that experience of like a camp aspect. So to me, it was just icing on the cake, no matter, you know, it was just, that was like the high point of the season. No, no, no questions asked. Yeah. And like, and deer camps, the, the thing is like, it's, it is harder. Like life's not getting any less busy for people, you know, there's just always more added. So it's like when you have, if someone owns a camp, it takes upkeep, especially when you got a couple guys in it and, you know, then you get kind of bickering about who's taking care of what and you have all these problems. And that was one of like, one of the things I want to do is, is one, try to like instill that drive into people to do that again, our generation of people to like get together and go to these camps. But also like when I, when I bought uh, a rental property, a house I turned into an Airbnb, that was one of the goals. I was like, you know, people could rent this out and have a deer camp without having the The, obligations uh, of like having to take care of it and the finances and all that stuff. They can, you know, spend a little bit of money, split it between four guys and just have that, that experience. And and I just think it's so important to, to have that coming back and telling stories and doing all that. Yeah. That's that. I mean, that's exactly what guys want. I mean, even because the, the big metro areas, like I have a lot of friends down towards Philadelphia, Harrisburg, Lancaster, some out in Pittsburgh. They want camps, but they don't want to, they don't have the time to drive up to four hours to upkeep it on weekends, get it ready for deer season. My one buddy, you know, they had one, but the landowner got sold the little chunk that they were on. They lost their camp. So it's like, there's opportunities out there like your your rental is have guys rent it for two weeks they get to call it like their little home 
you know, and they just get to go up, show up. You kept, kept it up for through the year and yeah, to have a great time. And then they get to go back without having that worry of, Oh, we got to get up there in the spring to have a spring cleaning, a spring cleanup, uh, you know, a summer cleanup to get ready for the fall. You know, we need a new water line or yeah. like, yeah. So it's, it's, it's this huge positive thing for people that don't have the the time and resources of everyday hustle and bustle life. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's those opportunities. Like I was just giving mine as an example, but I mean, now that Airbnb has, you know, that's a thing now it's pop more popular than hotels. And from at least from what I see is like, they have those all over like different States, you know, you can rent cabins. You know, we, we used to do that when we'd hunt Ohio back in, 2013 to 17 like my dad and, and his buddies did it for 10 years they'd rent the same cabin every year and yeah. go down to surrounded by public land and they could go and hunt and spend a week and and I, I just think that there's there's those types of opportunities it's just getting people together and getting people to to commit to it uh is, is the hardest thing yeah and you know it, it's it's the nature of the beast is getting uh and what's nice is like people of socials like that are in the media world showcasing that because then it just drives people to do it a little more like because a lot i mean you see it in the south a lot more than the north anymore is like you'll see like there's a, a group they're singing listening to the guitar at like duck camp but you don't see in a lot of deer camps like that anymore you know what I mean? Where they're yeah. still out there. They're just not people are kind of deviating away and doing their own little thing anymore. Yeah. yeah. And, and I've done like over the past, like seven or eight years, I've got to meet a, you know, a ton of people from, you know, doing the podcasts and social media and everything else. And, and when get an opportunity and someone's like in the area where I'm at, like I always invite them to deer camp just so like get to see it. And, you know, I've had people be like, oh man, that was so cool. Like someone got a buck and you had like everybody in your town stop by and just like check it out and have a beer yeah. and just like tell stories. And you hear the same story 30 times, but it's like, everyone's just like standing around looking at a deer, which is kind of funny when you look at it from like <laughs> the outside looking in, but yeah. it's, it's so fun. To the non-hunter, it would look really bizarre, but <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's the power of, you know, where this was a huge topic that I talked about a lot at ATA is specifically was the hunting community, instead of going against each, each other, like, instead of, you know, I, uh, you support this company or this guy, I don't like you. That aspect is like, it it's, it needs to change into everybody coming back together as a, as a sport, as a, it's a greater good type thing. Because, our, you know, we need that power of a group to continue carrying on our traditions and what we enjoy in the outdoors. Because, you know, it, you, you start tearing it down, it's not going to do any good. No, I, no, it, it does not. And and I, I totally agree with that. And I think there's, you know, again, there's so much that can be said negative about social media and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, all right, turn that around and look at what you can do positively and how you can have an impact. I can't change what X and so-and-so is doing, but what I can do is try to do yourself. And it doesn't matter if you have a platform like we have, or if you just have buddies that follow you on social media, like yeah. you can, you can have a positive aspect or, or impact, I guess, on other people from that and, and trying to, to help with this heritage of going on and passing it down generations. 
Well, change doesn't happen overnight. I mean, it takes one person to start something to get that initiation to go to two, to go to 10, to go to 50, to go to a thousand and just vice versa domino effect. But it takes a, a thought and a, and an action. And it can be as small as like you're saying, just your buddies, like you might have only a hundred friends, but if you get 20 of them that hunt, they'd be a, as a camp, like how far is that going to go compared to not doing it? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's the same thing with, you know, the way I look at anything when it comes to politics or whatever, like you, you can get mad at the, the whole big picture of things, but it's like, all right, what can you actually control and do? And that's usually starts at the community level and yep. local and being able to, to do something yourself that helps that. And, you know, if everybody did that, then we'd be in a really good spot. <laughs> exactly. That That's kind of like the end goal. It's, you know. How, how close can you get to that goal of everybody's on the same page? That's kind of the ultimate goal is having the 90 percentile in the positive 10% and then the 10%, the outlier instead of 50, 50. Yep. Yep. I, I completely agree. But yeah. anyways, Jake, thank you for coming on and, and talking on, on the show here. I, I was glad to, to get to talk to you here. We're both like-minded people hunting you know similar type things and and uh it was good to get to share camp with you and then uh get to get to chat about it on the podcast and oh yeah yeah it's been been fun so where where can people find all the stuff that you're doing if they want to you know track along with your stuff i mean jake is extremely talented with camera and he's also a really good hunter and i probably first and foremost and and so he captures some really cool things so share where you can find that yeah, uh, via socials, you know, Instagram. Um, I just launched my YouTube channel and I'm going to be coming out with a lot of, I'm, that's where I have a backlog of footage and being a one man show, kind of like yourself, uh, how I want to go about putting out those episodes um, is where I'm at right now, kind of deciding, do I want to do the document documentary style or do I want to just throw it out raw, uncut? Um but I'm going to launch the YouTube channel via Instagram, um, TikTok. I got all of them. You know, you can't really showcase what you can on others, but yeah, I got my own channel, The Void, and then um, my personal Jake Belinda on um, both of those. So pretty much follow along anywhere. And I'll try. I, I like to I like to stay in connection with as many people as possible. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And I'll put all those links in the show notes here so people can easily find them and, and check them out. But yeah, no, thanks again for carving out some time and, and coming on here, Jake. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. It was good talking. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.